0: This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, I'm Brian Thompson.
1: In co-presenting this edition, I'm Michelle Tang.
0: Join us as we welcome the new year with other lead organisations fighting climate change in our what is both our last episode for 2023 and our first episode of 2024. In podcast 51 we're giving you all the details on what these guys are planning on doing in the coming year. In her first appearance on Farms Food Future we're kicking off with if recently appointed, Vice President Gerardine Mukashimana. She'll be discussing the challenges rural communities faced in developing countries this year and IFAD's efforts to address these critical issues. Then we'll be asking colleagues at IFAD what the main issues facing smallholder farmers will be in the coming year and their thoughts on positive solutions.
1: To get insights on key initiatives tackling desertification, land degradation, and drought, we speak with Zenya Scallon, Communications Chief at the UN Convention to Combat Desertification, UNCCD. Yvonne Higueroa, CITES Secretary General will then join us to discuss challenges in human-wildlife coexistence for 2024 and the convention's efforts for sustainable species harvesting. She'll also share insights on captive breeding and their collaboration with rural communities for sustainable practices.
0: Next, we'll be delving into how to balance biodiversity conservation and the principles of a green economy with increased agricultural productivity. James Lomax tells us about the UN Environment Programme and UNEP's goals for the coming year regarding the preservation of ecosystems and natural resources. Operating under UNEP is the Convention on Biological Diversity, or CBD, David Ainsworth tells us about CBD's plans to balance conservation and global food needs in 2024, and the significance of engaging indigenous peoples and local communities.
1: Stay tuned as we introduce you to our latest Recipes for Change chef, Sophie Grigson. She's a renowned British cook and food writer now based in Puglia, Italy. She's also a keen supporter of organic and local food suppliers and is an advocate for decent food for children.
0: Then we check in for the fourth and final time with Max Cotton to get an update on his rural lifestyle experiment. It's been a year since his self-sufficiency challenge began in which he's been living on what he grows on his two-hectare smallholding near Glastonbury.
1: Next, we hear from Ludovic Labadier, Senior Expert for Agriculture and Environment for the International Union for Conservation of Nature, also known as IUCN. We'll be talking about IUCN's perspectives on reconciling water-intensive farming with the goal of ensuring food security for economically challenged rural communities. On a sweet note, some of our Recipes for Change chefs wrap up this year's final episode with their holiday wishes. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at ifad.org.
0: You can also subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform. And please don't forget to rate us. Coming up, we hear from IFAD's Vice President, Geraldine Mukashimana. You're listening to Farm's Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Michelle Tang. Gerardine Mukashimana, IFAD's vice president, brings extensive expertise in agricultural and rural development. Former Minister of Agriculture for Rwanda, she attracted private sector interest and pioneered climate funds for farmers.
1: Gerardine also has a background in molecular biology and genomics, she joined our reporter, Rosa Gonzalez, in the studio to speak on the obstacles faced by rural communities, the upcoming
2: prospects, and what EFAD is doing to tackle these issues. Good morning, Geraldine. Good morning. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining us to take a glance at what EFAD will be focusing on in the new year. We'll start off by looking back over 2023. Gerardine, what have been the main challenges facing rural communities in developing countries? Was the situation better or worse than you expected?
3: Unfortunately, rural communities all over the world struggled in 2023. They were severely impacted by climate change, extreme weather events and natural disasters. These events were worse than expected however we are starting to see slight signs of improvement in the commodity prices which can help to calm the global food crisis we should not forget that ongoing and new conflicts and uh, as well as new crises are threatening the progress toward SDG1 and SDG2 and they continue to spur food insecurity And
2: what are the prospects and challenges facing rural communities over the coming year?
3: Let's hope for the best but rural people, including the most vulnerable populations. We still need to brace for further extreme weather events, situations of fragility and conflicts, looking at what is happening uh, currently. However, 2024 is also providing a momentum to leverage new partnerships and finance to support those in the most need. New development finance models and private sector investments, potentially resulting from the ongoing reforms of development finance, might give countries better access to capital and investments.
2: Mm-hmm. How is IFAD working to address these critical issues?
3: So, uh, where IFAD works with the governments to invest in rural people, the fund assembles finance for transformative programs that create resilience of rural people and provide real opportunities for improved uh, livelihoods. With the support of its member states, IFAD will step up and uh, increase investments despite uh, fragile situations. We help small scale producers adapt to climate change, and uh, it will also leverage the private sector investments for inclusive and rural resilient transformation that leave no one behind.
2: And finally, as we reach the culmination of IFAD's 13th replenishment, what message would you like to convey to donors?
3: Now is the Time to act. Scaling up inclusive and sustainable investment in the food system transformation has the transformative power to get us back on track for the Agenda 2030. To transform food systems and address extreme hunger, poverty, and the climate vulnerability, we need every year between 300 billion and 400 billion until. It is really important that uh, the global community understand that every dollar spent today on resilience will save the world up to $10 in emergency aid in the future. So IFAD is the key actor to assemble and deploy investments to rural people and small-scale producers to equip them with the tools they need to transform local and global food systems for sustainable change.
2: Thank you very much, Jaredine, for joining us today.
3: Thank you.
1: That was IFAD's Vice President, Jaredine Mukashimana, speaking to our reporter, Rosa. Next... We'll be listening to our colleagues' thoughts on these difficulties.
0: You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Michelle Tang. What would you say are the main issues and challenges facing rural communities going into 2024? We asked our colleagues here at IFAD, and this is what they told us.
4: I
5: think that the main issue we have for 2024 is to allow rural people to get access to more innovative tools and instruments of finance and microfinance and access the markets.
6: Maybe we can uh, talk uh, with our experience, so we work in the food system coordination team and so we think that one of the biggest issue rotates around food system. Because, you know, it brings together all the different stages of production, of distribution, of uh, consumption, which needs to be changed to, you know, sweep towards a more sustainable and more more resilient uh, world.
7: Well, I think uh, we're going through a really difficult period of time globally, and I think bringing people together,
8: building peace, solving many of the really difficult conflicts, that I think is the big issue for 24. What I can see as sort of the biggest challenges for IFAD is the increasing intersectionality between uh, sort of development and uh, conflict and humanitarian crises, where of course IFAD is less used to, you know, moving into development organization and international financial institutions, so we try and keep our politics and our social economic uh, ideologies very separate. So, unfortunately, due to evolving crises like the one that's happening currently in the Gaza Strip or across the UK or Ukraine, and also the Black Sea Initiative, which is currently being disrupted. IFAD has a role to play in ensuring that these communities that are affected by these crises also are given the support that they need. And in fact, it is one of IFAD's mandates to make sure that no one is left behind. And unfortunately, if you do not give enough attention to those crises, they are going to be left behind.
7: The main issues for rural populations next year are continuing to build resilience in the face of one of the most overarching crises for food and security we've seen in decades. I think that one of the issues for rural populations is making sure that there is more of a connectivity built between rural and urban, and that we continue working on the capacity for rural people to drive their own solutions, to make sure that the financing that is then delivered to them include what they know is going to help them become strong and sustainable, and that it does match up with their local needs and local environment.
1: climates. The cat sat on the and I would say as well, security is going to be
5: one of their biggest challenges, especially in my region. Most definitely, uh, the actual issues that we are uh, we are having right now are just going to be enhanced, because right now we are already dealing with uh, climate change, which attacked like, the southern globe, and we have to deal with a lot of difficulties already, and these are just going to be enhanced. I also think that uh, in order to prevent the worsening of these issues, We could just work on uh, what is the best way to strengthen them. Personally, I work in uh, mitigation and adaptation finance. So our main issue is how to distribute climate finance in order to make it more addressed for specific tasks, for a specific situation and to address issues in the best way.
0: And then we asked, what can IFAD do to work towards a positive solution by the end of 2024?
5: Um, Enhancing the programs, tackling a specific population—that the ones they know that they are uh, mostly affected by the actual situation—and also prepare more staff and facilitators and also translators in order to speak directly to the population and to understand how the issue can be issued in its best way. What EFAD is doing and can do
7: uh, is really to work with local communities, work with people to give them a better perspective for future and build those opportunities for peace and prosperity for everyone.
6: This is what actually we are doing in our team. So we are developing a tool which uh, helps countries to know how much they are investing in food systems and helps to know their gaps uh, towards food system transformation. So what IFAD I think, can help and can support countries in doing is to support them in these types of projects.
7: Ifad support is invaluable in this. We need to make sure that the people who feed us are themselves fed and can live in safe rural communities on a livable planet. There needs to continue being an increase in terms of bridging the gap between projects being financed and the populations and their own voices, and their own capacity to bring it forward for sustainability. The more we continue bridging the gaps between policy leaders, global decisions, and local populations, the more of a
6: chance we have for long-term success. In my mind, I think for farmers and the rural communities, What they need is just um, the startup funds. I have some relatives living in the rural area in China. I know they are very hardworking. However, they they are lack of uh, sufficient funds to start their own business. So I think IFAR can pay more attention on the most vulnerable community, most vulnerable people, and help them to make a living for their family and make more money. So that's what I think. IFAD can do for farmers in 2024.
8: I think this is a moment for IFAD to step up its efforts even more to ensure that we get the replenishment that we need to be able to serve our beneficiaries, irrespective of whatever social-political situation they are in, and to, you know, go to those places that we are uncomfortable usually, uh, to go to, to have those hard conversations that we need to have with governments, with humanitarian actors, and just ensure that we deliver to the best of our ability to the communities that need us the most.
1: IFAD can has and will be able to respond to these challenges because we have the expertise, uh, we have the means, and we believe in our mission. Thanks for sharing your thought with us. Coming up next, we have the pleasure of welcoming Xenia Scallon from the UN Convention to Combat Desertification, or UNCCD. This is Farms Food Future, I'm Michelle Tang and I'm joined by Brian Thompson. The UN Convention to Combat Desertification, also known as UNCCD, is a significant global organization that addresses critical issues like desertification, land degradation, and drought. They're firmly committed to creating a sustainable future.
0: To achieve this, sustainable agriculture plays a vital role in preserving our lands mitigating the impact of land degradation and ensuring long-term food security. Joining us now is Xenia Cherny Scanlon from UNCCD. With 20 years' experience in various UN and international organisations across Africa, Australia and Europe, Xenia tells us about UNCCD's mission in global sustainable development.
2: Hello Xenia and thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Today, we'll be talking about what the UN Convention to Combat Desertification has in store for 2024. So, what are your key initiatives and goals regarding desertification, land degradation, and sustainable farming?
4: Thank you very much for having me. So indeed, uh, for the UN Convention to Combat Desertification, or UNCCD as it is known, 2024 will mark our 30th anniversary. So that will be 30 years since the convention was adopted on the 17th of June. And since then, obviously, the mandate and I think the relevance of this international treaty has grown significantly. I believe that nowadays, uh, no country, no region can uh, really be spared, unfortunately, the challenges of land degradation, desertification in some cases, and drought. And we've seen that, obviously, this is something that affects up to 40% of the ice-free surface of the world, and obviously we need to act urgently to reverse this degradation, to restore land back to health, to provide food and livelihoods to billions of people who depend on it, and also to build resilience to what we're seeing as the increasing droughts around the world. And in 2024, at the end of the year, the convention will also host its first ever meeting of the Conference of the Parties in the MENA region, in Saudi Arabia and Riyadh in December. And this will be the moment to really have the world come together to tackle these urgent challenges. Mm hmm.
2: And What are your plans for promoting sustainable farming practices to mitigate the impact of land degradation and to enhance food security?
4: Well, obviously, food systems overall have a huge impact on land. We know that food systems are the single biggest driver behind land use change, in some cases deforestation, freshwater use. So it is really a key linchpin in how we go about making those decisions and how we make sure that we can feed the growing populations without really further encroaching and degrading on available land. So this is something where we will be working together with our partners such as Ifad, I hope, and uh, many others to really come up with solutions that provide for the regenerative practices in agriculture to build local resilience. In some cases, and today we're talking on World Food Day, we have to shift and we have to change what kind of crops we grow and where. So these are going to be some of the uh, questions that will be before us in 2024 at our COP16. So we know
2: that agriculture is deeply intertwined with the health of our land, as you were saying, and that unsustainable farming practices can contribute to desertification. How do we combat this, especially in the regions where
4: there's drought? Well, actually, the good thing about it is that there is, it it doesn't take a lot of high tech, or not only does it take innovation and high tech. Mm -hmm. A lot of the practices have existed in all parts of the world for many, many years. And actually, the solutions may well come from the communities that are living on the front lines of land degradation, desertification, and drought. So, what we're doing is we're working with partners such as the WOCAT platform that provides, actually, that documents some of these solutions. And they have more than 2,000 practices catalogued and available for the world to see as to how we can really be more resilient and actually use the age old wisdom and knowledge. Very often that comes from traditional communities, from indigenous knowledge, to make sure that we actually can adapt and can be successful in growing our food. And it also preserving the health of our soils, combating climate change, safeguarding biodiversity and also obviously ensuring the prosperity of the communities.
8: Mm
2: -hmm. And you have a very interesting campaign now, Her Land, Her Rights. I would like to ask you how you're addressing gender disparities in land rights and what are the next steps
4: after this campaign? Thank you very much. So uh, UNCCD and partners, we launched this campaign at the start of this year. Her land, her rights is really a call to action for all of us to realize that although women make up half the world's population, they produce half of the world's food, they own less than 20% of the world's land. And when it comes to agricultural land, the percentage is even lower. And at the same time, women actually accounting to up to 70% of the world's hungry people and malnourished people. So we do see that discrepancy. We also know that when we do invest in women's access to land and their full and secure rights to land across the world, and, you know, it's not a situation that is peculiar to any one region, we are seeing that it is happening everywhere. We do see greater benefits in terms of health outcomes, in terms of education outcomes, the overall societal and economic well-being. So it is really something that we can and should be working together to advance. And I think at the celebration of Desertification and Drought Day this year on the 17th of June, world leaders really issued that appeal, that call to action to the world to end discrimination when it comes to women's land rights, to facilitate their access to finance, to investment, and for all of us to actually get behind women-led projects on land restoration, on drought resilience, and so on. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you, Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank
0: you to Zenia and our reporter Rosa Gonzalez. You can find out more at www.unccd.int. Stay tuned to hear from Yvonne Higuera, Secretary-General of the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wildlife, Fauna and Flora, or as it's more succinctly known, CITES.
1: You're listening to Podcast 51 of Farms, Food, Future, with me Michelle Tang and Brian Thompson. Established in 1973, The Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, otherwise known as CITES, aims to prevent the threat of species survival from international trade. With over 40,000 protected species, CITES relies on voluntary adherence by 184 parties. These countries work together to regulate trade and ensure conservation.
0: CITES Secretary-General Yvonne Higuero is an environmental economist with 26 years experience in international organisations. She played a key role in aligning programmes with Agenda 2030 and the Sustainable Development Goals. Her background includes leadership in environmental performance, biodiversity and natural resource management. She spoke to our reporter, Kira Rainsby, about the challenges in human wildlife coexistence CITES for seas for twenty twenty four and their collaboration with rural communities for wildlife friendly practices and sustainable species harvesting.
9: Welcome Yvonne. Welcome to our final episode of the year. Now to get started, I wanted to ask you what are the most pressing challenges towards solidifying a harmonious coexistence between humans and wildlife that CITES foresees for 2024?
10: Thank you so much Kira for the invitation. It's a privilege to be able to share some CITES insights for 2024. And in terms of what are some of the challenges that we have right now, we have been actually very successful in some of the work that we have done in increasing populations of wildlife. And this, as you can imagine, has an impact on humans. And one of the areas in which we have been working lately is on African elephants. And again, we're sort of, if you want to call it, victims of success of all these anti-poaching efforts. And now what is happening is that there's more encroachment of wildlife onto, for example, farms, crops of those local communities, Indigenous people who live side by side with wildlife. In the case of African elephants, now we find that some of the communities there are feeling that they're not benefiting from that presence of wildlife, that in fact they're having difficulties because of the presence of wildlife in terms of lives, in terms of injuries, and in terms of their crops. So we have to find ways in which we can ensure that there's an incentive for those local communities.
9: Now, taking this all into account, can you provide us with some examples where CITES has ensured that the harvesting and trading of species are done in a sustainable manner? That's a
10: very good question, because when we talk about wildlife, we're talking both about animal species and plant species. So we have systems that are put in place to see, is trade changing over time? Is there a possible overexploitation of species? Then there's non-detriment findings, which are the scientific findings, to ensure that what is going to be traded is actually ensuring that this species can continue to live in the wild. If those species are on Appendix 2, which means trade is allowed but has to be regulated, they have to have a non-detriment finding that shows that what they are trading is sustainable. And one of the examples that I can give you is the one of the vicuña, which is a species that lives in the Andean regions. The animal was killed to be able to use the hair that was used to be able to make scarves. And this was a really valuable natural resource, so it was decided the trade needed to be banned. But eventually, because of very good management systems that were put in place and anti-poaching efforts, illegal hunting was reduced, they were able to put all Peruvian populations of this Vicuña to Appendix 2. The populations were raised up to 200,000 in 2012, and now those local communities, those indigenous people who work with Vicuña can invest in schools, in hospitals, putting food on the table. A lot of times we only talk about animals, but we need to talk about plants under CITES as well. And another successful example is about African cherry tree, and it's the bark of the tree that is harvested and traded in Cameroon, and this is used for traditional medicine medicines, for the pharmaceutical industries, and sometimes for timber as well. And basically, they killed the tree when they tried to take the bark off. So they were listed on Appendix 2. And so we had to work with them to be able to have sustainable management. And now they work. There's bark harvesting that is done in a proper way that they don't kill the tree. They set quotas of how much, which is, as I explained, that is sustainable, that is not over-exploitation. So now they have private local communities working in community forests to receive the rewards, to receive the, the financial incentives that they need to be able to maintain these trees. So these are very important lessons.
9: We know also that CITES works on captive breeding and artificial propagation systems as their main mission. So how can CITES guarantee that the likes of captive breeding and artificial propagation systems do not harm various species?
10: Almost all of the animals involved in international trade were taken from the wild. But then we have discovered that, in fact, captive breeding and artificial propagation has overtaken the wild resourcing of these species. So, in fact, it has helped because if we take the example of crocodiles, where in the past the majority of them were taken from the wild, now they're being captive bred. And, and many local communities benefit from this to be able to sell the skins of these animals. The same thing with artificial propagation, many trees, many flowers, many plants are artificially propagated and they have more benefits than taking directly the harvest from the wild because then you reduce the pressure on these wild populations. We now have systems within CITES that they have a review in accordance with the provisions of the convention and if it's not, they will identify what kind of remedies, what kind of remedial actions need to be taken to make sure as always with the objective of the convention that this trade is not detrimental to the survival of wild
9: species. Finally, how do CITES collaborate with rural communities to promote practices that are compatible with wildlife conservation goals? Thank you for this
10: question. This is a very important part. The work that we do with Indigenous peoples and local communities is very important as we have a program called Rural Community Engagement, and we try to engage them in the CITES decision-making process. We talk to our parties and say, when you're taking decisions about CITES species to be listed, you should be speaking with the local community so they can see either if it means that they're going to be able to have less access to it, what alternatives do they have to use of these species, or how they can benefit with the trade that may be regulated now and they will need to have some permitting system and how they can take part in that trade. Quickly, I can give you one example in India about artificial propagation. And it's it's actually an appendix one species and they have been able to artificially propagate a single species that's called kuth in India and it is a medicinal plant. They were really a marginalized group of people. It was really this kuth cultivation that transformed economically the area and they were able to then around 150 to 200 families engage in this cultivation in the country and help them for the children's education, having access to food and having a significant cash income. So they really are able to benefit from this cultivation. And I think what's more important there, the value of what it means to have this plant in your community and being able to sell the harvest within the provisions of CITES so it's accepted.
0: Thanks to Yvonne. Check out the CITES website for more information. It's www.cites.org. Next up, we talk to UNEP's vision for 2024 with James Lomax. Three, two, one. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson, and I'm joined by Michelle Tang. The UN Environment Programme, UNEP, serves as the foremost global authority addressing environmental challenges. For over 50 years, it's led the transition to resource-efficient and low-carbon economies, strengthened environmental governance and protected critical ecosystems. Through its scientific approach, coordination and advocacy, UNEP guides its 193 member states towards the Sustainable Development Goals and a harmonious coexistence with nature, a mission now more critical than ever.
1: Joining us now is UNEP's James Lomax. With a background in tropical agriculture, he leads the integration of sustainable practices throughout the agricultural supply chain. James emphasises holistic thinking, considering environmental impacts, livelihoods and nutrition in the food sector – fostering partnerships and policies for interconnected governance. He spoke to our reporter Rosa Gonzalez about UNEP's vision for the next year.
2: Hi, James. Thank you for joining us today. The first question I would like to ask you is what are the most pressing challenges in 2024 in terms of climate change, biodiversity and pollution?
11: Thank you so much. Um, I think many countries are really starting to see the real impacts of climate change, whether it be from drought to flood. And I think where I live in Nairobi, we've seen this very much so in the Horn of Africa, where we had, um, I think this year has been okay, but uh, the previous four rainy seasons had failed, which meant that the food system and the agriculture and the production base was extremely fragile to begin with. And then if you bring on then the other issues around availability of grain on the open market, the availability of fertilizer, this all created in this year, and well, in the last 18 months, a really difficult position that we found ourselves in. Now, how does one, if you like, take that fragility and that vulnerability and turn it into resilience? And I think that's really where we have to focus on. Now, in December last year, we had a fantastic event, which was the ratification and finalization of the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework. And this very much sets out a series of excellent activities, targets, goals that from a food systems perspective, touch upon pollution, they touch upon biodiversity in nature, and they also touch upon climate change. And I think if we can start to bring that framework into the policies that countries have and also businesses start to report against, that's a significant step that we can take going forward into 2024. We also have COP28 and there is an Emirates declaration on food and agriculture, which is also really shaping narratives, trying to sharpen minds so that we start to bring together the frameworks that exist around biodiversity, climate change, around this idea of applying a food systems lens to the ongoing issues that we have. I think if all those things can come together, the issue of resilience can be increased and progressed and especially the ecological resilience of our food systems can be improved.
2: Definitely. And can you tell us about the key goals that UNEP aims to achieve in the agricultural sector, aligning with the principles of a green economy?
11: Thank you so much. So of course, when we're talking about the green economy, we're talking about looking at gains when it comes to things like green jobs, better pay, better livelihoods, but essentially very much increasing the ecological resilience to shocks, whether they be climate or geopolitically related. And I think what we have to do And what we're looking to do is we're looking to see, okay, so how can we invest into understanding that, for example, nature-based solutions like investing in soil health and integrating livestock back on the land very much increases the resilience of farmers going forward. I think 2024, is going to be a bit of a turning point. We have to understand whether we are going to be investing in food systems in a business as usual scenario, or are we going to be seeing changes in the way that we produce and consume food that are taking us down a path where livelihoods are increased, where farmers are encouraged to invest in their land. When we're looking at how can we repurpose the huge amount of subsidies, a uh, unit FAO and UNDP did a, a publication that stated that of the $725 billion of direct support that goes to farmers, a significant amount, I think about $300 billion were distorting to the environment. If part of that money can be repurposed to very much create a just rural transition for farmers, then I think we're in a really good space.
2: And how do you plan to balance the need for increased agricultural productivity with the preservation of ecosystems and natural resources?
11: Well, I think this is a really important question. And I think if we do not invest in our ecosystem services, if we do not invest in our soil, if we do not invest in, for example, the water holding capacity that we have to increase, especially in a drought stroke flood scenario that seems to be more prevalent now all over the world, not just in the developing world that by taking a medium to long-term approach, we are very much encouraging the investment in the long-term sustainability of our food systems, which in turn then will be able to balance out the ecosystem needs and the ecosystem degradation, we have to reverse this, but at the same time brings nutrition and healthy food back onto the equation too.
2: And building on past collaborations with Farmers Major Group, for example, Could you provide us with some insights into any upcoming projects that will further strengthen the partnership with smallholder farmers?
11: We would like to see a policy push towards the nexus between soil health, agroecosystems and water security. We have very, very many projects in the offing when it comes to the GEF portfolios and also the adaptation of projects we have, which are from the Green Climate Fund. For example, in Kenya, we're looking at how watersheds are protected. Farmers downstream can continue to irrigate their crops, but at the same time, those that are further downstream are not struggling when it comes to their own water security and access to water. There's a bit of a silver lining as well when it comes to the fact that fertilizers now have become quite expensive, is that it does enable us to start to think laterally about how do we ensure that fertility is maintained. So as long as we can understand that there's no silver bullet, I think these holistic approaches, especially bringing focus back on soil health, ecosystem health, can start to reduce the need for external inputs.
2: We've talked about the importance of food systems, so I would like to ask you the big question we always have, that is how do we balance biodiversity conservation with the imperative of feeding a hungry planet?
11: So I think this is one of the tensions that we have, actually. They're obviously not mutually exclusive. As soon as you start to look at a 5 to 10 to 15 year horizon, that's when you start to look at the strategy of applying a food systems approach to creating long-term food security. By investing in the natural base, the foundation of a country's agriculture sector, you are increasing the inherent fertility of the soil, increasing the resilience of the food system to deal with some of these shocks. The trouble is it's going to take a, a bit of time, and this is where I go back to my earlier point around incentivizing the green transition. If public actors are able to utilize funds to invest, build knowledge, build capacity of farmers to go down this route, then I think we'll be in a much better place and resilience will be increased. And resilience is everything, considering the volatility we have in our weather and the volatility we have in food markets, which is, of course, founded upon drought and floods on the one hand, but also geopolitics and conflict on the other.
0: Thank you, James. Find out more at www.unep.org. And now we'll hear from David Ainsworth and the Convention on Biological Diversity, or CBD.
1: This is Farms Food Future. I'm Michelle Tang, and I'm joined by Brian Thompson. Established in 1992, the Convention on Biological Diversity, or otherwise known as CBD, emphasises sustainable development an ecosystem approach and collaborative partnerships while shaping global efforts in biodiversity preservation, sustainable resource use and equitable genetic resource sharing.
0: Our reporter Rosa Gonzalez spoke to CBD's David Ainsworth. With over two decades of experience in biodiversity communications, David leads strategies for the Kunming Montreal Framework which he'll explain more about in the interview. Let's find out from him about CBD's goals for 2024.
2: Welcome, David, and thank you very much for joining us today. We're going to be talking about the Convention on Biological Diversity's plans for 2024. And the first thing we would like to know is, given the evolving climate challenges, how has CBD adapted to ensure biodiversity conservation?
12: So it's clear that over the last year there's been an increased recognition of the uh, strong links that exist between biodiversity and climate change. In general, this is due to the unfortunate events that we're seeing occurring around the globe. Uh, We see floods, droughts, and a number of other events that are being exacerbated by the degradation of ecosystems. So the loss of human lives as a result of these livelihoods and well-being, uh, as well as the threats that these pose to food security and global economies are really associated with these events. Now, thanks to the work of experts and scientists, uh, and important reports such as those that we've seen from the uh, IPCC and IPBES, we've also got a stronger understanding about the impacts of climate change and biodiversity, as well as the potential role that the conservation and restoration of ecosystems can play in the mitigation of and also adaptation to climate change. Biodiversity loss and climate change have to be addressed together and not in a siloed approach. So we've said for some time now that ecosystem-based approaches to climate change can provide up to 30% of the climate mitigation needed by the year 2030. Now if these measures are appropriately designed and managed These approaches can deliver multiple benefits as well for biodiversity and for people. If we adopt conservation and management strategies that maintain and restore biodiversity, that can have a major role in adapting to the impacts of climate change. Now, the new Kunming-Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework addresses climate changes throughout its work, and this is the framework that was adopted in Montreal last December. So, for example, target number eight of this framework aims to minimize the impact of climate change and ocean acidification on biodiversity and also increase its resilience through mitigation, adaptation and disaster risk reduction actions there's also target 11 that aims to restore maintain and enhance nature's contributions to people and that includes ecosystem functions and services examples of that are things like regulation of air water and climate soil health pollination and also the reduction of disease risk as well as also the protection from natural hazards and disasters and this is through nature-based solutions or ecosystem-based approaches that benefit people in nature and then finally, I just want to mention that target 19 of the framework also calls to substantially and progressively increase the level of financial resources from all sources. And this includes domestic, international, public and private resources to help implement national biodiversity strategies and action plans. And that should mobilize at least $200 billion per year by 2030. And one of the ways of mobilizing this is to optimize co-benefits of synergies of finance that target both the biodiversity and climate crises. hmm
2: and have the 2010 HE biological targets been met how are the new targets set at CBD cop going to be different and ensure their achievement
12: so as we know now that the Aichi targets were not fully met However, some progress was made on some of them, and most importantly, we learned a lot from both the failures and the successes. Based on what we learned from the Aichi targets, the Kunming-Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework is designed differently. It has more quantitative elements. It includes also a plan for mobilizing resources in support of implementation. It also has appropriate scaling. The plan also increases domestic finance, including by the notion of mainstreaming and scaling up existing green finance initiatives. This new framework embraces a whole of government and whole of society society approach, which means that we've got all hands on deck. And another uh, important part is that it does acknowledge the rights of Indigenous people and in local communities in a way that the previous framework didn't. And immediate implementation is in the cards for this framework. And so these are the things that make it quite different from the IG targets.
2: Definitely. So talking about Indigenous people's active involvement, how are you addressing the changing landscape of conservation? And how do you involve Indigenous peoples and local communities?
12: Yeah, thanks very much. I mean, it's it's really clear that the biodiversity crisis operates both at global and also at national and local levels. There's a growing recognition that the vital role that Indigenous peoples and local communities play in conservation and sustainable use and also in access to benefits and also the fair and equitable sharing of benefits from the use of genetic resources is really important. The traditional knowledge of people is also recognized as a key part of the knowledge base we require. The framework recognizes these IPLCs, if I can call them, as custodians of biodiversity and as essential partners in its conservation, in its restoration, and also in key sustainable use. So this means that the implementation of the framework is also committed to respecting their rights, their traditional knowledge, their values and practices. And this respect is ensured through the notion of free prior informed consent which is an important cornerstone of the work of the convention, and also their full participation in decision-making processes, all in accordance with the national legislation, international instruments, including an important uh, reference to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and Human Rights Law. So, you know, Indigenous peoples and local communities are really brought to all parts of this framework.
2: Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So finally, I would like to ask you about the measures you are advocating for in 2024 to balance the critical need for conservation with the imperative of feeding a hungry world.
12: Yeah, I mean, biodiversity conservation, it's exceptionally important in addressing questions of food security, as well as addressing all these other challenges we have, such as water security, land degradation and climate change. In some ways, it goes without saying that biodiversity plays a vital role in virtually all aspects of sustainable development. Now, having said that, biodiversity conservation needs to be practiced in tandem with the other goals of the convention. So that's the sustainable use of the components of biological diversity and also the fair and equitable sharing of the benefits arising out of the use of genetic resources. We will not be able to feed this growing population and increasingly hungry world without addressing these three components in a holistic way. So first of all, promoting sustainable agricultural practices is essential. So for us, that includes practices such as agroecology and agroforestry, notions such as crop rotation, reduced pesticide use, and the judicious use of fertilizer. These can all help maximize food production, but also while minimizing the impacts on biodiversity. And these measures will help ensure that we restore degraded ecosystems and their functions and services, including important services such as pollination and soil biodiversity. I mean, overall, we need effective policies, regulations, and international cooperation, because these are critical for getting this balance between conservation and food security. Uh, You know, national governments, uh, local governments, international organizations play a key role in shaping and enforcing these policies as well. Over these next years, up till 2030, to make this successful, we need to bring down farmers, smallholders, family farmers, Indigenous peoples and local communities, women, and also youth to help maintain, restore, and make the sustainable use of biodiversity or agricultural biodiversity for on-farm and also in-situ conservation. The inclusion of all these groups is really key for a fair and effective implementation of the framework. I think it's also important to make sure that we value and valorize, if I can use that word, traditional and an Indigenous knowledge that'll help us conserve and reintroduce biodiversity and also neglected crops at the farm level and national level. And then I think the other part is we need to invest and scale up traditional and innovative solutions that'll help us produce nutritious food and reverse biodiversity loss. So for this to happen, we need to make sure that the notion of agrobiodiversity is reflected in national biodiversity strategies and action plans, and also ideally aligned with other national plans like national agricultural plans and food system pathways.
0: Thank you to David and our reporter Rosa. Don't forget to check out CBD's website, www.cbd.int. And now we're very excited to introduce you to our new Recipes for Change chef, cookery writer and celebrity cook Sophie Grigson.
1: You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang and Brian Thompson. We're pleased to welcome our latest Recipes for Change chef, Sophie Grigson, joining us from southern Italy in Puglia. She's an award-winning British cook and food writer who, in 2019, made the move to Italy to start anew, inspiring her cooking to include many regional specialties across Italy. It has also inspired some of her new cookbooks, including her latest A Curious Absence of Chickens and landed her a cooking theory series on the Food Network UK called Sophie Greekson, A Slice of Italy.
0: And now that's two series on. Have you seen it?
1: No, I haven't. Something to check out.
0: Absolutely. It's absolutely brilliant. And the cookbook, Absence of Chickens, is very true. There are very few recipes in Julia which include chickens because a chicken was more valuable for its eggs than for its meat. Amazing. So you wouldn't cook the chicken because, yeah, you wanted the eggs for breakfast. Anyway, something new. She's written over 20 cookbooks and actively contributes to the likes of the BBC, the Irish Times, and the Evening Standard with her writing. She's expected to release her new book in 2024. Our reporter, Kiri Rainsby, asked Sophie about the delicacies of Italian, specifically Puglian recipes as well as the challenges that the south of Italy faces in terms of food availability and scarcity in the context of climate change.
9: Welcome, Sophie. Welcome to Recipes for Change and to our podcast. We're very excited to have you on board. So I just wanted to start by asking you what inspired you to become a chef?
13: Well, I don't actually ever call myself a chef. I've not been formally trained and I always think of myself as a cook. I come very much from a background of being a domestic cook and a home cook. And I think for me, I get much more inspiration from cooks, from people who cook for families, who cook their traditional recipes. That's really what interests me.
9: So you decided to move from England, your birthplace and home, to make roots in southern Italy. So how has this change influenced your cooking and do
13: you draw inspiration from both cuisines for your dishes? Absolutely. The move to, to Puglia has added so much to the way I cook. I mean, I came down here thinking, yeah, I know lots about Italian food and about Italian cooking. I've travelled in Italy a lot. And then I discovered this regionality of cooking here and that Puglian cu- cooking is based massively on fresh vegetables and beans and it comes out of, out of a world of incredible poverty. I mean, the, it's based on a lot of vegetables on pulses and carbs primarily. And that I found fascinating.
9: In this light, what made you decide to join Recipes for Change?
13: I decided to join Recipes for Change because, for me, food has always been, it's like a calling card. I mean, it's a a connection. You, you, You start talking to people about the way they cook and the way they eat. And... You instantly have a connection and food is sort of like the, the DNA of life in, in many ways. It's, a, it's a, a DNA of culture within the way people cook is embedded history, family, where they live, what the produce has been. And I think it's very inspiring to see that the way that people with, often with relatively little have created over centuries something that is unique to them that is a way of cooking of eating, and that's that I find truly inspiring the one thing that I really like about this project is that you look at not only what people are growing and how they grow it but also at what they then do with it and making sure there is a distribution route and that seems to me very important it ties in with cooks and chefs the world over, looking not only at produce, but also how it's farmed, where it's farmed, where it's come from. Food politics is so scarily complex, and for many of us, it just seems too complex to dig into.
9: And in your experience, have you witnessed the impact of climate change on the availability and accessibility of
13: food resources? Well, even here in, in you know, the relative, what is now relatively affluent mainland Italy, yes, I, the past couple of years, in the summers there have been shortages of fruit and vegetables. And that's been because of wildfires, particularly wildfires in, in Sicily and the south of Italy. And wildfires have affected the, the supply chain. So, yes, I've seen very clear evidence of that. Also, the olive harvest is hugely important here. Until recently, Puglia provided about 40% of all of Italy's olive oil. It's been producing olive oil for millennia. And that also is, there's a a double threat. There is this appalling disease of olive trees, which uh, which is just destroying olive trees and gradually working its way up but you also have the harvest affected by total lack of rain so this past summer there has been so little and the olives are still very small we've had incredibly high temperatures particularly in july for here we had it to 42 degrees that also affects how things grow so yes i've noticed quite a lot of change in this area that i now live in
9: finally how are you ensuring more sustainable methods to your cooking and maybe as just a broader message to finish how can all chefs contribute to making food systems more sustainable and just
13: i do believe in buying locally and working with seasons and trying to support producers by by looking at at adapting the way one cooks to what is available and plentiful rather than basing the way we cook on import. And to also to buy not just fruit and veg and the fresh produce and meat, and, but not just those things, but also to look at the value-added product that people are making with surpluses, for instance. So whether it is jams and chutneys or pickles, actually try and support the people who are farming our land and who are making our world a better place to be in. And I guess the message we have to give is small steps. Buy good produce, buy fresh produce, buy locally produced produce and locally made value added items as well and celebrate what we have rather than yearning for what we don't have.
0: Thank you, Sophie and Kira. Make sure you also check out our other podcasts. In podcast 48, we talked about all forms of malnutrition and brought you a fascinating report on obesity in developing countries.
1: Then in podcast 49, we shifted the focus to rural women and women leaders in agriculture. And in podcast 50, we celebrated being together for 50 Farms Food Future episodes featuring some of our favorite interviews of all time. Coming up, we'll be doubling the fun as we move to two episodes a month. We will be dropping episode 52 on the last Monday of January and episode 53 on the second Monday of February. And it's all about marine biodiversity and the power of seaweed. Tune in next month to hear all about that. Now we bring you our final visit with Max Cotton.
0: You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Michelle Tang. It's now time to catch up with my ex-colleague, the BBC's one-time parliamentary correspondent, Max Cotton. As we told you, back in February, he has since moved on to live in the rural southwest of England, near Glastonbury, famous for its rock festival each summer. Rocking the small-scale farming scene, Max himself has a near two-hectare smallholding. Back in September 2022, he kicked off his latest project to live on only what he grows, except for tap water and salt. Now the year is behind him. Max joins us on the podcast. Max, it's great having you here. Tell me, how did those last three months
14: go? It was really, really easy, to be honest, for so many reasons. Firstly, I worked out in about early June that I was going to be all right. And I wasn't going to run out of food. Uh, and so I just sort of stopped gardening in the garden, really, because there was all this grub. All my salads were great and all my onions were fine. And I'm starting to get tomatoes and cucumbers. And as soon as I discovered that that it was all going to be OK, I just sort of stopped gardening and put my feet up. In England, in the summer, the second you've got, you know, sort of summer things, raspberries and strawberries and tomatoes and... And uh, all of those things, peppers and chilies. Uh, then, you know, you're. It's wonderful. Then, you know, it's it's great. That's what an English summer is all about. So, and uh, I had lots of new potatoes and stuff that I planted early and and things. So, they all came online, and it was yeah, it was great.
0: So, when you came to the end of it all, the one year, how how were you feeling? Were you feeling like? roll on another year or were you feeling ecstatic that it was you could return to a more normal life
14: as it were the the really the really big standout was coffee because i'd got over not having coffee after the first sort of nine or ten days and i was pretty ambivalent all the way through this project but not, not coffee not being a big thing The project ended, and I did have a a cup of coffee. I had one or two cups of coffee on the on the sort of second day, and I've been amazed at how different my work rate is when I've had a cup of coffee. Uh, I realised in that moment, after drinking my first coffee for a year, that I've lived my life in a basically caffeinated state. You know, of about forty-five odd years. I've been it's been caffeinated and my work rate when I've had a couple of cups of coffee is enormous and I've been scratching my head all year talking to Tess my producer and other friends and my wife and I was like why can't I just get on with these things I just feel tired and I can't concentrate and I just can't get on and um, it's been one of the real problems I've had being self-sufficient is is I've spent hours looking at jobs, thinking oh, I'd better get on with that in a minute, and uh, and uh, after one or two cups of coffee, I'm bang, you know, really, really getting lots done and working really, working really hard. So that's been a real eye opener. The second real eye opener is that I can't ever imagine going back to normal and having normal food from an, a normal shop uh, again. I mean, I have had bits and bobs. I've had having my peppers been great and and, I, and the, the the kids have bought me takeaways and stuff, but I can't ever imagine going back to uh to normal I really can't um for, for for food reasons because the food you grow for yourself is just so much better and so much nicer and for political reasons you know i i uh um I've come out of this feeling like I've done a good thing and uh now i want to work on other other parts of my life i want my i want i want to be way below net zero personally way below it uh, as soon as i can i finished the project i was in the garage finished the project the day before i was in the garage putting 20 pounds worth of uh, of uh, diesel in my truck and it just felt all sorts of wrong all sorts of wrong and so i want to um Uh, yeah, I want to keep going and other things as well, Brian, yeah
0: How are you going to try and change things moving forward in the way you farm, the way you live?
14: Well, I uh, have set up a new scheme um, uh, of bartering and there are a group of about six or seven um, people like me, small farmers, most of them producing vegetables in community supported agriculture projects and stuff like that, but for other small farmers um uh, who, uh, who who live near me and we are going to set up a bartering system um so that we can barter what we have and aim for all of us to be 100 percent food self-sufficient uh in a very short space of time because the economies of scale just me doing it is complete nonsense uh, but if there's 15 of us or, or so uh, then uh, it's much, much, much easier. So we've set up a um, uh, that scheme and we're all going to slightly specialise to make it work well. Um, so that's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to that. It's, that's called the Magna Barta. And I've uh, set up this, yeah, this little group called the Magna Barta where we're all, we're all going to um, uh, to work together. Um, so tell me,
0: is, is there going to be a, a film or... a a book of the story of the film of the year in Max's
14: life? Something uh, coming up? Is, uh, we do have a YouTube channel, uh, which people can watch, uh, uh, you know, bits and pieces of, of what's happened. Um, uh, I've been commissioned to make a BBC radio series for next year, um, which is going to be out in June. So I'm doing a radio series. And I do absolutely need to sit down and and write a book Uh, because I'm bubbling with other ideas. There's lots I want to do now. Do you know what I mean? I can can so see being able to sort of move into different areas and experiment with different things. It's it's completely taken over my life. The problem is, obviously, the main problem is, is when you are 100% food self-sufficient, you wake up every morning on the battlefield and it's a real job to kind of get over, get everything organised. And it's, you know, it's, it's really, really time-consuming. Completely takes over your life. When you get to the end, peace looks incredibly lame.
0: So I think a lot of people who've been following your story would be really interested to know, on the personal level, how much did you weigh at the end of this? And what was your first indulgence when you finally finish the year
14: uh i um I, i'm not going to tell you how much i weighed when i started but i was very very keen on on losing some weight because i am too heavy because i love food and i eat lots um and notwithstanding the fact that there was lots of work as well i still managed not to lose weight um, so at the end of the project, I lost one pound, four ounces. Uh, four <laughs> <pounds>. <laughs> I don't know whether to be hugely proud or or mildly ashamed. Um, when I finished uh, and had my last day, I went over to see a friend of mine who runs this beautiful little... English cafe on a holiday route in the West Country and it's very kind cool, of cream tea and all very sort of crisp and nice and she made me a cake a Bakewell tart, useful beautiful and, uh, and I had some of that and, uh, my first cup of tea for a whole year
0: Thanks Max please keep us posted on the Magna Barter group as it moves forward.
1: The first three parts of Max Cotton's journey in self-sufficiency can be heard in episodes 38 41, and 45. If you want to check out more about Max's experience, you can follow his YouTube channel, Maxwell's, and that's with an apostrophe S, rant. Next up, we have Ludovic Labardier, Senior Agriculture and Environment Specialist at the International Union for Conservation of Nature, IUCN. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson.
0: The International Union for Conservation of Nature, or IUCN, is the world's largest and most diverse environmental network with more than 1,400 member organisations and 15,000 experts. IUCN collaborates globally, leveraging scientific and traditional knowledge to combat habitat loss, restore ecosystems and enhance well-being.
1: Our reporter, Kiara Rainsby, met with Ludovic Labardier, Senior Agriculture and Environment Specialist at IUCN. With a decade of experience in agricultural and rural development projects in West Africa, he honed his expertise at the French Ministry of Agriculture, focusing on food security. And he was involved in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change Negotiations, as a focal point on agriculture. He spoke to Chiara about the future challenges that the IUCN foresees for 2024, addressing the problems
9: of water-intensive farming on crops and the land. Welcome, Ludovic. Thank you for joining us on episode 51 of Farms Food Future. I wanted to start by asking you, what are the most pressing challenges and concerns related to food security, land use, agriculture, freshwater and climate change that the International Union for Conservation of Nature foresees for 2024?
6: Thank you for inviting me. So I think one of the most pressing uh, challenge is definitely water availability, water quality, and uh, regularity in rainfalls. We've seen in the last years, especially in the dry season, an and acceleration of the impacts of climate change, becoming much more irregular and major. There is also real concern about the state of soil degradation and especially the impact of unsustainable agriculture production system and do not restore carbon to the soils and and also um, have very damaging impacts on soil biodiversity. For sure, land use changes and deforestation is also a very uh, alarming phenomenon. And we have to make sure that food production and agricultural production can be increased in a sustainable way without expanding the land that is used by agriculture.
9: Thank you for that answer. Could you perhaps then maybe provide us an overview of the specific initiatives and strategies that the International Union for Conservation of Nature is currently undertaking to address these critical issues?
6: In fact, IUCN has developed a strategy to promote sustainable agriculture for land health. And this is directly linked to biodiversity, especially in soils. So how do we reach land health? First, making production system more sustainable, and also restoring biodiversity inside agriculture production system. So we also have developed tools first to monitor land health. We we are working on the land health monitoring framework, and also to guide investment and projects towards nature-based solutions. And here we develop a specific guidance to the IUCN global standard for nature-based solutions. We also accelerate the dialogues in most of the countries where we have developed agriculture activity and expertise between the, the conservation and the agriculture sectors so that these sectors agree to take action. And last point, we are supporting the agriculture sector, particularly farmers' organization and private sector company that are willing to change their business model.
9: And with that, how are you balancing the need for food security and nature conservation?
6: Well, first, we need to clarify that in most cases, food security depends more on the capacity of people to access food, especially through poverty reduction and political stability, than to produce more food. There is enough food globally to feed the world. The question is, how do we manage to have an equitable development that benefits to all and especially to the the poorest? Secondly, an agroecological and regenerative food system can be more efficient in terms of food production. So if you reduce the subject to how can we ensure that national policies related to food production can be more sustainable, you have to consider different contexts. For example, in many least developed countries, food production is the priority. In emerging countries, efforts of sustainability have to be done, especially when these countries are dependent on exports. And as markets and regulation and norms will continue to increase the pressure on those countries. And in developed countries, yields are already declining. And especially in the context of changing diet, this is not a real problem because this already drives the reduction in the level of consumption of consumers in developed countries.
9: Finally, how do you intend to reconcile water-intensive farming with the goal of ensuring food security for rural communities, particularly those facing economic challenges?
6: Let us be clear, water-intensive farming is not a solution and it's not a sustainable way of production. So we have to change water-intensive farming into water-less-intensive farming. So these can be done by changing crops especially from crops that are really requiring water or a lot of water to some that are requiring less water such as millet or sorghum for example when you increase the the, the, the content in organic matter then the capacity to retain water is also increased which means also less erosion and less need for irrigation and when you need irrigation you can use some techniques like micro irrigation or water drips and there are also a lot of agricultural practices ensuring for example the permanent cover of soils that also have the, the capacity to protect soils from the heat and the dryness and contribute to to keep water in soils this implies also a change in the diets, in the consumer's habits. With the reduction of availability of water, you have to consider the way you also harvest water to make sure that it's available in the driest season. It's also very much related to the farming systems you're using that will also, in most cases, contribute to a to, to better recycling of water within the landscape.
0: Thanks to Ludovic. Find out more at www.iucn.org. And finally, we bring you some of our Recipes for Change chefs holiday wishes. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson and Michelle Tang. To end our very last episode of 2023, some of our Recipes for Change chefs have left us with their wishes for the new year.
1: Recipes for Change is a collection of recipes from eFAT projects worldwide, offering a taste of diverse lives through food. Our celebrity chefs enhance these recipes, linking farmers and consumers, addressing barriers to equitable and eco-friendly food systems. They share with us their hopes for 2024.
7: Happy New Year! It's Chef Joseph Yoon from Brooklyn Bugs, and we hope to continue sharing the tremendous potential around edible insects and the innovation around insect agriculture to impact global food systems and the UN17 Sustainable Development Goals. We also hope to amplify Indigenous voices and practices and also EFED's mandated
0: mission everywhere we go. Happy New Year! hi everyone my name is chef alimandri from ifad recipes for change i would like to wish you guys a happy new year and looking forward to make more delicious recipes for change
12: in this coming year wishing you guys the very best and a happy new year happy new year all the way from banff canada chef shane chartran wishes you all a safe happy new year and hopefully support new indigenous food
7: worldwide hi hi my friends
13: Hi, this is Sophie Grigson, and Happy New Year to you all. My wish for 2024 will be that all families everywhere can be able to sit down together and share food every day. Happy New Year.
1: Thanks to our recipes for change chefs, Joseph Yoon, Ali Mandry, Shane Chotrant, and Sophie Grigson. And that brings us to the end of episode 51. Thanks, as always, to our producer here in Rome, Francesco Manetti, and to our reporters, Rosa Gonzalez and Chiara Rainsby.
0: But most of all, thanks to you for listening to episode 51 of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash Podcasts. Join us next month as we explore the depths of marine biodiversity and its secrets, including a tasty helping of seaweed, which I must admit, don't like that much.
1: You don't? I no. love seaweeds. I'm really looking forward to that How episode. How do you do your seaweed? Uh, eating it uh, toasted. Great snack.
0: Anyway, <laughs> that's that's that's.
1: Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcast at efat.org and send us your voice or text messages to this address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. from me, Michelle Tang, and the team here at EFAD. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.